ASBMR Speaks podcast. My name is Dr. Suzanne Jondever, president of ASBMR, and I'm proud to present the only podcast dedicated to discussing the latest developments in bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal research. ASBMR is the society of basic, translational, and clinical scientists that make observations that spark discovery with flow from the bench to the bedside and the bedside to the bench. Our initial series, Pathways, ASBMR Stories of Discovery, is hosted by Dr. Michael Econs, Distinguished Professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Throughout this three-part series, we'll speak with pioneers in the discovery of FGF23. We'll explore dysregulation of FGF23 in renal failure, inhibiting FGF23 for treatment of X-linked hypophosphatemia, and the interplay of FGF23 and iron. FGF23 is just one of numerous pathways that have been elucidated by ASBMR scientists, shaping fundamental understanding of bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal biology, and then harnessing this knowledge to improve human health. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to tune in to future episodes. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our first of three ASBMR podcasts on FGF23. My name is Michael Econs. I'm from Indiana University School of Medicine um, in the Division of Endocrinology Department of Medicine, and I'll be your host for the next three podcasts. Uh, the goal of these podcasts is to not only review some exciting science, but to also learn about what led to the progress. Today's guest, Dr. Thomas Carpenter, is well known to the ASBMR community. Uh, Thomas, professor of pediatrics and orthopedics at Yale University. He's medical director of the medical school's hospital research unit and head of the pediatric metabolic bone disease clinic at Yale. As most of you know, he's made numerous contributions to the metabolic bone disease area, particularly regarding X-linked hypophosphatemia. Tom, welcome. Great to be here and, and appreciate the uh, invitation. So I'll get it started with just a, a, a couple quick questions. Uh, first, what got you into the metabolic bone field to begin with? Well, you know, that's very much a, a constellation of things, most likely related to both an intrinsic affinity for reading about the path, believe it or not, the calcium phosphate pathways as a medical student during our endocrine block, but also having a um, respect and endeared enlightenment from a professor at that time who taught us that material, a Dr. Jerry Dubovsky at UAB in Birmingham. And um, uh, he uh, structured things in a way that made it very fascinating and um, set up a uh, uh, a basis for what one would experience in clinical years. Great. What motivated you to lead the XLH studies? Well, I'll, I'll even go back to those years in Birmingham. As a medical student, I saw my first patient with um, another pediatric endocrinologist as a student in his clinic, um, seeing a, a patient that had what we called vitamin D resistant rickets. 
And this patient fascinated me because as Dr. Cunningham, my mentor told me, you know, this isn't a simple disease. It's got two things going on and we have to treat with both phosphate and vitamin D. And this, having studied from our earlier, uh, uh, earlier years, the concept of vitamin D deficiency and learning this as a phosphate deficiency disease, I just couldn't imagine that you could have these two unrelated things happening at the same time in a given patient. And that puzzle stuck with me. And um, the combination of vitamin D regulation or dysregulation and phosphate wasting traveling together in this syndrome um, continued to be a, a, like a cloud following me around trying to figure out what the answer to the puzzle could be that would account for these two defects. The, the story, I, I think, kind of tracks the, the whole fascination of, of, um, of FGF23 evolving to, to explain it. Um, I had a, I had a uh, number of very um, uh, good mentors who, who made me think about the problem in a variety of ways uh, after house staff training as a, as a fellow with um, uh, Connie Anist in Boston and then subsequently uh, after coming to Yale, uh, Howard Rasmussen. Uh, the two of them worked together and um, listening to them discuss the disease was, was uh, just like music to your ears if you'd been thinking about these problems. Great. No, that's great. So what, what was your first kind of aha moment when you saw a piece of data and thought, wow, this is really going to be big? Well, that, that's an interesting one, too. Uh, you know, going along the same theme, I can remember as a fellow a publication, I might have even been a rapid communication in a journal by um, Ralph Meyer and Richard Gray, who had written in uh, a brief communication about the 125 dihydroxyvitamin D levels circulating in the animal model of XLH, the hype mouse. And they were able, they were the first to actually show this uh, altered, uh, these altered levels uh, not being, uh, not being, uh, uh, normal or elevated in the um, in the hype mouse model, um, and, and this was at a time when you could barely measure calcitriol. It took you know loads of serum to even do these assays, so it was a technical feat. But it began to explain part of that puzzle of uh, okay, why do they need vitamin D? And there was um, this immediate trigger of we've got to look at why those levels are, are not uh, as high as they are in the wild type mice. And my mentor, Connie Anist and I sat down and designed experiments to extract the kidneys from these animals and look at the actual metabolic conversion rate um, to see if this was an overproduction, um, uh, rapid Cat catabolic effect or uh, 
something else that could account for these, these differences in levels. And we sort of raced Susie Tenenhaus to uh, that, um, that conclusion. And I think she won in the publication uh, race, but we, we all generated very similar data and it was, um, it was really fun. And it turned out to be critical data that showed that, uh, so in the setting of hypophosphatemia, the normal homeostatic response is to increase calcitriol concentrations and XLH patients in the height mice have inappropriately normal or, or low calcitriol uh, concentrations. So the concept is a concept that I love in endocrinology is that it, uh, labs are not binary. They're not either normal or abnormal. They can be inappropriately normal. <laughs> um, and, and I think it tells us a lot about the physiology. Um, so you, you then went on to, to make numerous contributions, both in, in using the therapy uh, 125-decalcitriol and phosphorus, and then leading the studies in berosumab. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those studies, uh, and, and again, when did you know this was going to be big? Well, I think the um, identification of FGF23 as a candidate mediator of the disease upon uh, both the work that you had done in identifying the FGF23 gene as the mutated cause, as the mutation seen in the autosomal dominant phenocopy of XLH, um, autosomal dominant hypophosphatemic rickets, and, and also the work from um, two labs, both um, um, uh, Mike Levine and uh, Suzanne Jandeber on one publication, and uh, um, Dr. Shimada and the Kieran uh, Brewery Group on the other uh, publication, uh, isolating uh, FGF23 is a candidate phosphatonin from the uh, TIO tumors. And this, uh, this really set the stage to, to apply a therapy. And I think that's, um, that's what got us on the horn. We actually were looking for things in a slightly different manner and found, uh, happened to identify a slightly different FGF Mm -hmm. as having a phosphaturic, as having a direct phosphaturic activity. And we uh, were also at that time laying the groundwork to work with uh, Kieran in terms of um, a multiplicity of different studies. So just in your career along the way, what do you think are the best resources that have helped you uh, along the way? And what have you read or listened to that really inspired you? Well, this question dates me <laughs> because it it goes back to before the internet, before the rapid dissemination of of uh, the literature today, and it it conjures up these images of going off to either the library in Boston during my fellowship or or here in the medical school at Yale and pouring through the index medicus, pouring through the stacks getting a cart to haul the volumes of bound journals to the Xerox machine and spending literally hours making your stacks of papers so you could go read and then, um, and then uh, uh, write your grants and papers. But um, 
I, I think the foundations for much of that started with a textbook that was a kind of a Bible for metabolic diseases. We used to call it the Stanberry, and it was uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, called the Metabolic Basis of Inherited Disease. It began to evolve to a web-based form under various other authors, but Howard Rasmussen, together with Connie Anist, wrote the chapter on X-linked hypophosphatemia and eventually turned it over to Dr. Econ's, <laughs> and uh, and that textbook promptly uh, ruined it. But no, <laughs> <laughs> that that textbook really um, really taught me a lot, and I I actually began to find it useful for many other disorders, um, and. And its way of teaching about XLH with its presentation of physiology followed by the, the pathology, all evidence-based and, and uh, detailed in terms of its analysis of the available literature at the time uh, became, became the standard for me. And I uh, really uh, thought that that started things. But as, as I became involved around that time uh, with the ASBMR, I, I think the resources of the meeting um, and then the journals uh, uh, have also played a, a, a big role, but the capacity to go to meetings and hear speakers it, back in those earlier days had, had much more impact, I think, as an event than they might today because of the sparsity of available information that you could have at your fingertip on your laptop, say. And um, getting to that annual meeting and talking with people and hearing the, the major players in the field speak was very inspiring. But um, having the proximity to, to Connie Anist and Howard Rasmussen was invaluable as well. I would, I would also add just from my own personal experience, uh, going to the, my first few ASBMR meetings was, was big for me. And also, frankly, I got to know people in the bone field more from the AIM meeting in SOMAS um, and some of the smaller meetings, ASBMR uh, sponsors. Um, and uh, I find that half the meeting takes place outside of the meeting room. And then talking to colleagues, and uh, I really enjoy doing that, um, and meeting young people, um, and then finding out what they're doing, kind of over a cup of coffee sometimes. Um, and then, uh, what's the one num number one takeaway that you would like our ASBMR audience to kind of get from today's episode? Well, it's it's hard to distill it to one single thing, but. Um, I think, I think there are two things that, that I would say three things that, that are important takeaways. One is that you have to be, and they're interrelated, um, you have to be committed to what you're doing. It's, it's a non-compromising entry when you start down this path. And you have to enjoy it and you have to make it fun because whatever you do, there will be a lot of tedium and 
there has to be a way that it is fun for you to do this. And that's a kind of a natural evolution of working with the concepts and the people. And that's my third point. That is what really is probably as satisfying as anything else is the tremendously rich relationships you develop with a number of people as you go forth with this, um, both mentors and students and, and a very collegial uh, group of people that, that you interact with uh, through the years, it really makes it a, quite a satisfying uh, path. That's great. I, you know, I, I think being passionate about your work uh, really helps tremendously as you have obviously been passionate about the patients and the contributions you've made. Uh, while you were talking, I was thinking about one other finding that I'll ask you about is that what do you think, uh, what's the best way forward for physician scientists um, both within the ASBMR group and but just in general for physician scientists? Yeah, this is the, the tough one. It's the diminishing species in a way, um, in part because of the tremendous pressures that the patient-oriented activities uh, carry with it, as well as the um, tremendous competition for funding to move forward uh, a, a pure basic lab approach. Um, but I think there's an important place for that physician scientist because that individual can inform and talk to both parties better than someone that stands only in one camp. You can work with the basic folks and provide for them the rationale and the clinical significance of the work they're doing. And the bringing some of those basic principles back into the clinical arena provides a certain uh, structure and uh, discipline of thinking that is often um, missing in, in a, uh, a hectic clinical operation. And I think the role has to persist because of its ability to, to unite the two disciplines or semi-disciplines. So I, I think it's critical to develop people in this way. I think that uh, allowing for the, clini the, the dedicated clinician to have protected time to get research involvement going is um, very important in, uh, in both fellowship and in those, right after that, right in those uh, transition years into becoming independent. And we have to really support that effort so that that role can continue. Thank you very much. This has been uh, terrific and uh, greatly appreciated. Um, any other comments before we break? Well, once again, uh, I should say uh, this is an honor to be interviewed. And as always, uh, yet another chapter in being able to interact with one of my very good friends, Dr. Michael Econs. Thank you, Tom. Uh, the pleasure's been mine. And uh, thank you to the audience for, for listening in. 
Uh, we'll see you uh, next podcast um, in a bit. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASBMR Speaks podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast streaming platform. And stay tuned for the next installment of our series on FGF 23, coming soon.